This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. Today, we're operating remote in Tampa, Florida. We're at CEO Space, and we're with Adam Markell. He is the best-selling author of Pivot, The Science of Reinventing Your Career. I've read the book personally, and I've given it to both of my kids. If you haven't read it, I would recommend that you put it on your reading list. He was picked up by Huffington Post last year as one of the top speakers that you must see. So without much more of that, welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, we're down in Tampa, and we're outside on the deck, and this is March, and it is stunning. It's beautiful. Yeah. So We're being selfish at the moment. So it, it, we, we could have been inside a stuffy room breathing. <laughs> Recycled there and all exactly. that stuff. <laughs> Goodness knows what. Yeah, anyway. with that being said, tell me a little bit about your business and who you serve. Thank you, Bob. Our company's called More Love Media, and we serve a community of people who are Business leaders, people that are some entrepreneurs and others that are running larger organizations, some quite large organizations who are reinventing. And when I say reinventing, and you're right, the book Pivot is the art and science of reinventing aspects of your business and your personal life as well. It's not a term that says things are wrong necessarily, and we've got to change them because I'm desperate for a change. I mean, we've got people who are certainly, you know, whether it's their health or something in their relationships, either business or personal relationships, that they are urgent about making a change. That's for sure. But we've got a lot of people that are simply looking at the landscape ahead and seeing what's happening right now, which is that we're living in an age of disruption, an age of transformation. And if you are not innovating ahead of that change or that disruption, well, then you end up like a lot of famous or once famous companies that don't exist anymore. You know, I think about the CEO that's in this, you know, it, Pivot reminds me a lot of uh, there's a show on TV about Forged in Fire where they take a piece of punk metal and turn it into something useful. Mm. And then you pound that thing out and you have tempered steel at some point. And I think the CEOs nowadays feel like they've been tempered a lot. And in that time frame, you work with organizations and try to develop a culture inside the organization that's heart-centered. Let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah, we call it heart space in the workplace, which is it's kind of interesting when I sit down with a CEO and talk about that. But this is really about a culture of empowerment, of creating a culture where people are more free and feel emotionally safe to be creative, to be innovative. And I think that it's really important that a company these days, as we were saying just a few moments ago, that to remain ahead of that cycle of change and not just manage the change, but utilize it and look ahead at where it is that you can innovate. You have to have a culture that promotes that. You have to have you know, compensation that rewards that kind of behavior. And in many companies, their structures, their comp structures and other things, the culture that's set up does not reward innovation, even though it's part of the company's mission. <laughs> so the things that are pronounced from the top down, that they want to see the company innovate and be agile, be flexible, and yet the structures of the company are anything but that. You know, I think about for the listener out there that's running a company and go, you know, I feel the need to innovate and I've been told I should innovate, but I haven't got a clue. You know, I'm so busy in my day to day going, you know, and, and I'm so busy in the company. I have little time to think about on the company or innovating in the company. So if you're involved in working with a company, what do you do to help them get toward that innovative space? Well, I was a CEO for the better part of about seven years and 
you know, people don't know what you were the CEO of and how many people you reached. Can oh. you touch on that for a minute? <laughs> okay. Well, it's not some huge <laughs> – I mean, the number of people we touched, I think, was into the millions because I ran what was the largest personal and business development company in North America. And so we had 80 employees and a, a number of other contractors and vendors and people that we touched outside of that. But we were working with about 30,000 new students a year. And so it's a lot of people in a, in a big ripple effect is how we felt about it. And these were folks that were wanting to make, utilize change, learn how to get ahead of the curve of change and not have to be, my theory about it is that there's two kinds of changes. One that's by design, changes that we design and then build something. And there are changes that are by default where, you know, one day something changes and you go, how in the world did that happen? You know, and it, it's like a, a smack upside the head. Could be that your business starts to go sideways, your competition starts to eat your lunch, or, you know, there's other things that happen that we just don't expect. And we've got to have a mindset around looking forward and seeing that the only thing that doesn't change is change itself. Mm -hmm. That's one of this great, whether it's an oxymoron or it's a paradox, a riddle of the universe, that change is a constant. So where I see companies uh, sort of make the mistake, and not just companies, but individuals, is that they resist change that they want to maintain the status quo. You never, if you ask a company, are you looking to maintain the status quo? Are you playing your business on defense only? They'll never say yes. But the culture says otherwise. The employees will say otherwise. If you, you know, <laughs> you're surveying the people who are on the front line, they will tell you that fear runs rampant, that there's a culture of fear. And what do I mean by that? I mean a culture that does not reward risk-taking, calculated risk-taking. In fact, what it does is it says, don't make mistakes. And when people are afraid of making mistakes, you do not have innovation happening. Really interesting. I was reading an article just the other day about this, that mature companies have a way of moving forward in their business model. And that systems, repeatable processes that produce a predictable result, that kind of thing. And companies that are starting up in a space, startups, they have a very different mantra. They need to figure out a business that'll work before they run out of money, right? Their mm -hmm. run rate, <laughs> they've got certain runway. And when that money is gone, you know, unless somebody acquires them or they can get an infusion or convince some other friends or family, you know, to put more money into this thing, they're done. They're toast. Mm -hmm. The urgency is different and the reward is different. So, you know, to me, in a mature company, you've still got to have that startup. There's got to be some element of the startup that it still lives inside of that company. That's what innovation to me looks like. And from your experience, who's the chief cheerleader of that mindset? Oh, there's no question it has to be the CEO. You know, CEOs get a bad rap and some for good reason. I mean, look, it's like anything else. There are parents that are great parents, great husbands, great wives. And there are those that are still reading the manual. They still have to, they're going to make mistakes and it's not always going to work out well. So a great CEO is in short supply. A good CEO is also in short supply. And the mediocre ones, I think, are in abundant supply. And that's why business is so tough. You've got to be the one to cascade those messages from the top. You've got to be able to create vision. And that doesn't mean, and that was the toughest thing that I ever got asked, especially when I started out as a CEO, was what is your vision? It's like, what, are you kidding me? <laughs> and then I read somewhere that, that when Steve Jobs and when Michael Dell and I think Bill Gates as well was, was included in that, and they asked, well, you know, what's the toughest thing about being a CEO, it's the question of creating a vision, holding a vision, because that vision also, it's not like it's a vision for the next 50 years, because the world is changing too rapidly, a pace of change. That's why the pivot skills and what we bring to a workplace, what we bring to executives and to 
leaders like CEOs is the ability to not just think outside the box, but really obliterate the box, be able to act outside the box because action, action is the most important thing to control our thoughts. Usually people are thinking, well, I got to start with my thoughts and that'll create my actions, but it's actually the other way around. So I'm a CEO listening to this episode and go, I need Adam to come into my organization. What should a CEO expect when you walk through the door for the first time? <laughs> a hard time. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because in my role as in running that company, I was also one of the trainers. I was the head trainer and I created a lot of curriculum and I love doing that. So I'm a teacher first and foremost. That's our company, More Love Media is in essence a, a teaching company. We don't call ourselves consultants, but we come in and sometimes I will do keynotes. I'll speak to large groups and then we'll end up working with those companies in culture creation or working, you know, with their sales culture, a lot of times the culture that is more obviously showing what's wrong with the, mm -hmm. you know, more systemic problems with the company shows up in the area of sales and marketing more typically. So we'll work in those areas. But when I walk in the door and I sit down with someone, who, a CEO, I want to know what their deepest challenges are. I've probably been there. That's what I think gives me a little bit of a leg up because I can understand what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night and worry about cash flow or worry about even making payroll at times. Been there and I've un I understand that. And I understand what it's like to also wonder whether the culture with what's going on inside the company is almost like termites. It's, it's kind of a silent thing that's eating away at the foundation of the company. Because when you're disconnected from the workforce or when you're not really knowing what it is that is sort of not just going on, but how people are feeling inside the company about what the company is doing, it is like a termite. It can become toxic. And learning how to deal with that toxicity or identify it, how it is that you are attracting the talent to be on the bus and also welcoming and having a process to have people exit the bus that are not meant to be on the bus. I think these are day-to-day -day issues. I call those the t terrible T's, toxicity and turnover. They're, again, more subtle in many ways and quantifying that, quantifying the cost to a company when there's that toxicity that has to be measured where that exists and the turnover, which can be measured, but often isn't part of the bottom line analysis. I think these are things to address. I also work with CEOs about how it is that they cascade the message because you said earlier, you know, where does this all come from? It starts at the top. And for a CEO to be great and not merely good and certainly not mediocre, they have to be great at communication. They've got to be really effective. Steve Jobs was a great communicator. Not everybody liked him, liked his style, but you know his product launches were prolific. When he made public pronouncements, people listened. And that's what a CEO, whether they're comfortable in front of a microphone or on a stage in front of hundreds or thousands of people or on a Zoom in front of their company as I was doing quarterly, often quarterly meetings with our company entirely in three different countries and to be in front of your company and to be vulnerable, to be real, to be transparent in many ways is what that workforce is looking for. They're looking for that brand of leadership. So sometimes I'll ask a, a CEO, how effective are you? How comfortable are you? at just communicating, communicating your message, cascading your vision. And if they're not great at it, well, that's that's one of the areas that we help them in, is to be able to be more effective at articulating their message, at conveying it in a, in a way that is not robotic, but is heart-centered, where the company, everybody in the company, senior leaders on down, know you mean business. You know, it, the thing that strikes me is we're, I've, I've heard you speak a number of times, and the people that are listening don't know. But what they really don't know is the size of your audience experience. And you're articulate now, and I'm sure everybody's going, well, he was just kind of born that way. <laughs> 
So, you know, let's talk a little bit about your journey to being an effective speaker. And I believe personally that there's a disconnect in how senior leadership views speaking skills. You either have it or you don't. And if they have coaches and consultants on every other area of the business, that they don't have a coach or a consultant in the speaking side strikes me as a missing opportunity for them. Yes. So (laughs) I'll start with the part about being born to do this kind of thing. I'm an introvert. And I say that to audiences only just recently. I have So in answer to your question, I was a lawyer for 18 years. I was a litigation attorney. I used to, my stomach would turn into knots every time I had to stand up in court, speak to the judge kind of thing. I forced myself to do that because it was in service to a higher purpose, a greater mission, which was to protect and defend and care for the rights of my clients. When I reinvented my career and my my life and uh, after 18 years of law practice and started to pursue this other area, I had to face that fear. I had to face the idea that, you know, who am I to stand up in front of people or I'm not you know, that's 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 not my greatest skill set. I'm a thinker. I, I know how to solve problems. I, I know how to motivate people, you know, quietly, one-on-one. That's where my comfort zone is. And a lot of other CEOs are the same way. They don't really want to be the face necessarily. They don't want to be, you know, Jack Welsh or Steve Jobs, whoever it is. They want to be more quiet, more humble even in their leadership style. And the truth is, that's why I say when I walk in the door sometimes, it's a confrontation of sorts because I want to understand what's created the status quo or what's created what they've got. And, you know, everything that everybody has, whether it's you know, you're in a leadership role or in some other area of your life, everything that we have is what we've settled for. I want to say that again because it's I want to emphasize it. Everything we've got is what we've settled for. So CEO has settled for some level of what's going on for everything that's happening in his or her company, they've settled for it. So to me, it's always about, well, where is, what's the next thing? What is intolerable? What's something that you're no longer willing to settle for? And if what you've done so far has produced everything you've gotten, it's clear that something has to change. And sometimes it means stepping forward and not having any false humility or feeling like you have to be more of a quiet leader, but that you're willing to stand in the fire and be heard and learn, as you say, practice, as you said, to be a more effective communicator so that folks that are working in that company can look at you and say, you know what? I know this guy's not necessarily wanting to do this. It might not even be comfortable for him to do it or her, but they're doing it anyway. So if they can be uncomfortable, then I can be more uncomfortable. Well, you know, I I think about the incidents of speaking, you know, with the advent of Zoom and others. And I think there may be, you know, a thought that used to be I didn't have to speak in front of my employees so much. And then you think about the video conferencing and how frequent that occurs. And I I think about the presence and selection of words and how you come across is now much more in demand just from frequency. And so kind of a pet peeve of mine, you see somebody doing a a presentation. We happen to be on a porch out here. And so we're subject to lawnmowers and wind. But but, you know, yeah, so, you know, it is what it is. But, you know, I think about the CEO and, and I used to pitch in the military a lot and speaking skills were absolutely critical to get across the point. And so for the folks that are listening and go, before I forget, how do they reach out to you? How do they find you on social media? Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty easy. They can, uh, we've got a podcast they might enjoy as well. It's called the Conscious Pivot Podcast. And it's this idea that to do better, we've got to be able to maintain, create and maintain better thoughts. Truth is, we are all growing or we're dying. I mean, that's 
the way it is in nature. We're out in nature right now, so everything that we're seeing around us is in a state of growing. And the stuff that's not growing is in a state of decay, entropy. And businesses are the same way. We are the same way and our businesses are as well. We're either growing or we're in decline. So to me, how you bring a level of consciousness to that state of growth, to that constant never-ending improvement of yourself and of your business and your leadership skills, your speaking skills, all those things is really important. So they can check out the podcast at Adam Markell, which is two M's in the middle, adammarkell.com forward slash podcast. And my site, that particular site also has information about some of the ways that we serve community, serve leaders, serve leaders that want to speak more effectively that actually want to, dare I say it, get coached, (laughs) get mentored in that speaking arena. And if there's one thing I would say that I'd love people to know is that you just don't have to go it alone. I mean, Steve Jobs, for example, who's, again, very well known in many ways more well known for his speaking than for almost anything else. His story is profound. The innovation he brought to that company and the the success of the company is, is incredible. But if he had never spoken, if he had never been the face, if he had never stood on those stages to introduce the iPod and the iPhone and those things, we wouldn't know him and wouldn't have the respect that we do. And he wouldn't necessarily have been able to lead that company through the dark times that he did and be able to get so many people to rally behind his message. So adammarkell.com is where people can find me. They can find me on LinkedIn as well under the same name, Adam Markell. Find out more about our company, More Love Media as well. Those are probably the best ways for folks to reach out. Well, super. Well, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. And this is where I get to quiz you to death, which is, oh, I love this part. <laughs> so for this part, what's the most recent book or most influential book that has altered your perception on being a CEO or how you run your business? Wow. But it's not a recent book. I mean, I read Simon Sinek's Start With Why. I, I hope anybody that's listening to this, watching this, has either read it or will read it. So it's Simon Sinek, Start With Why. And I loved Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. That's a big book. It's that yay thick or whatever it is, isn't it? And I'm not the fastest reader in the world, but I really, really enjoyed it and took my time through it. And it's a book on business for sure. It's a personal book. There's a lot of, you know, it's like a lot of things, including good speaking. It's, it's a roller coaster, right? Because <laughs> if you're predictable, you're boring. So the book has a lot of ups and downs because mm-hmm. Steve Jobs had a lot of ups and downs. He had some ups and downs. Yeah. But the business teachings in the book are phenomenal. You know, for you, you know, looking back over your career, we all experience a failure or, or what may appear to be at the time a failure. How has that failure served you or your company best or set you up for future achievement and why? Yeah. Failure is something that from the time that we're very young is trained out of us. It's because, again, compensation drives behavior. And so in the case of being a child, our compensation is love, it's approval, it's acceptance from our parents and our peers and our teachers. And when we make mistakes, we're disapproved of, punished even sometimes. So it's the opposite. And what ends up happening in many ways is that we grow up thinking that failure is a terrible, terrible thing. And we try to avoid it at all costs. If there's anything that I could say I've learned from and done my best to model in all the organizations that I've either run or been a part of, it's that failure is is not even the word that I think of. I think of finding out. Failure is finding out to me. I can find out with every failure, and I've made, I've had so many of them, I find out what doesn't work. And the beautiful thing about knowing what doesn't work is that when you know what doesn't work, you know what does work. Sometimes when I sit down with a leader, I'll just have them do a T-chart. I mean, I'm giving away. <laughs> you, you don't even need to have me come in. I'll just tell you what I do, right? Just, you know, create a T-chart. And on the left-hand side of the T-chart, write all the things that you know don't work. 
right now. And they can list oh, 10 things that don't work, <laughs> you know, and the, this person and that part of, you know, the, this department and whatnot, all the things that don't work. And then I said, great, so that's easy. Now I want you to take a look at everything on the left side and tell and write down how it informs you on the right side, on the right-hand side of that chart, what does work. Because when you know what doesn't work, you also know what does work. You get so much clarity out of that one simple exercise looking at what doesn't work, the failures, in other words, and see where that informs your your understanding and your clarity about what does work. It's profound. I've used that in my company and companies and still do to this day. It's really great. If you could take in, in, and put an ad out on your message on page one of the local paper or whatever, sharing your message, what would it say and why? Well, this might sound a bit odd, I guess, in a business context, but I really believe that the root of everything that everything that we want is rooted in love and whether the success of a company, the success of our, of our own personal lives and our relationships, everything's rooted in love. And so for us to have a better experience, whether personally or in our leadership roles, we have to do the one thing that from the, from the time that we're born to the time that we die, we're in, we're in a, an unfolding state of learning how to love ourselves. That is beginning, middle, and end of the story. And when we are learning that, when we are willing to put the work in and learn how to love ourselves more unconditionally, everybody's a beneficiary of that. We're a better leader. We model something that everybody's looking for, whether they, they think they want. I mean, it's not money's important, success and all the, you know, the facets of it are important. But at the end of the day, people are looking for that. They want, they want to know they're okay. Soul-wise, heart and spirit-wise, they want to know they're okay. So loving yourself is the best work that we can do for ourselves as well as how it impacts everybody around us. Well said. What's the best allocation either of time or initiative that's helped you or your company most? This is this is about resilience. And you and I think before we, we turn the mics on, mm-hmm. we were talking a little bit about this. So for a business leader today to be successful, they have to be resilient. And I, I love there's a Harvard Business Review article about corporate athletes where they compared athletes, the best athletes in the world, the ones that have won Olympic gold medals and won the biggest golf tournaments and everything else. And they compared those athletes with corporate executives and high achievers. And and they found something really incredible that's in common with those folks. And the ones that had succeeded in the sporting arena were faster to recover than the ones that finished second place or third or didn't make the podium or whatever it is. They were able to recover more quickly in between points, in between games, in between seasons. So they were more resilient. And they found that in the corporate sector, it was the same thing, that rituals for recovery and resilience were key. And so that's part of what, when we come into a company or when I speak on stages and keynote, oftentimes that's what I'll speak about is the importance of resilience. And just a moment ago, when we were talking about self-love, for example, that's a practice of resilience. It's a practice, it's a ritual to be able to recover more quickly because the season for an executive doesn't end. I mean, it, it, it's a long it's, time. <laughs> it's evergreen and it could be 40 years of evergreen, you know, game after game after game. I mean, geez, the you know professional athletes, they get to rest. They get to take a season off. You know, they get to recover and you know, physically recover mentally, emotionally. No, CEOs are going, you know, kind of to almost 24-7. It's never not on your mind when you're a CEO. Three o'clock in the morning, you get up to go to the restroom. It's on your mind. It's on your mind. Yes. What do you think is your most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you and your company most? Well, 
I, this is sort of what I'm known for, but I, I've taught this one waking ritual. I, I really believe that the first few moments, minutes of your, your waking time, the beginning of the day, is when your mind is the most fertile, the soil is the most fertile to what you plant in it. And so since I know that creating unconditional love is the most important end game for all of this, I start right there at the beginning of the day. So I wake up. That's the first thing I do. And I always make a joke about that, whether it's in so many contexts, I'll just ask people and I'll ask you, Bob, are you willing to wake up tomorrow? <laughs> it's on my calendar. Is it on oh, your calendar? Yeah, it's on my calendar. You know what? See, your experience, because if it's not on your calendar, <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? So good for you. So you wake up and in that moment of waking where you can have a conscious realization of the fact that that's not guaranteed, that's not promised. And as you take that first waking breath, there will be people who are taking their last breath. Mm -hmm. There'll also be babies being born taking their first breath as well. People point that out to me all the time. <laughs> and that's a blessing. So you can be grateful. So it's waking up and being grateful in the moment right then and there for that breath. And with every challenge or every quote unquote problem or every failure or thing that you might be dealing with, you can still have a, a genuine moment of gratitude there. And then I say some words right from my bed or when my hit, feet hit the floor, I say these words. I say, I love my life. I love my life. I love my life. And that's what people know me for probably more than anything else. That's not a bad way to start a day. It's not. No, sir. Over the past three years, what belief or protocol have you established in your company that has most impacted you or your company's success? is really this idea of creating rituals for resilience. So everybody in our company is required <laughs> and it's not a it's not something we have to police, believe me, to take time out during the day to take a twenty minute walk. Mm -hmm. So folks just go out in groups and they walk, you know, walk around and just stand in front of a beautiful you know, we live in and work in San our offices in San Diego, so there's a lot of nice greenery around. Mm -hmm. So it's it's maybe not that easy if you're living in a place where You've just gotten a nor'easter, and I know mm. I'm, from, I'm from New York, so they've had four nor'easters in the last crazy, like four crazy. weeks or something like that. It's been incredible. So it's not quite that simple, but we've got to take time. Maybe it's for mindfulness, just to take 20 minutes of stillness, you know, away from phones, away from devices, away from social media, and be quiet and still. But something that you do to take care of yourself each day. Just 20 minutes even is key. You know, I, I think that really good things come to you when you're out of your chair and away from the computer and you're moving physically. I think that a lot of issues that I have resolve themselves when I'm doing that thing. So that's great advice. What advice would you offer to a new CEO that's assuming the role of CEO for the first time? Run away. <laughs> <laughs> Quit. Think twice. <laughs> No, absolutely not. No. It really is to get mentorship. And I think this is one of the mistakes that I made. So when you talk about failure in my past, it was thinking that as a CEO, I couldn't let anybody. I mean, it's why it's the toughest job. It's why it should be rewarded the way it is. You are very much on an island of sorts. And yet, even though you may be on an island or perceive that you are on an island, you must get mentorship. And I didn't at the beginning. I thought that was a sign of weakness. That would be a sign that I wasn't qualified or wasn't fit. So whether it's to you know, hire someone, there's great organizations that coach our, you know, our company, our company supports CEOs in that regard, but there's stakeholder coaching and, and all kinds of really good organizations that will support CEOs. And to be in, to receive mentorship or coaching so that you can have this objective this ability to to run things past someone else and to 
even be vulnerable in a way that you don't feel like that you can necessarily around your immediate peer group. You know, Vistage is a great group to get into a group where you're around other CEOs and get some mentorship from more seasoned CEOs even. These are really great, great things for a new CEO to do. For you, what do you think is the most common misconception about you or your role as CEO? What's the most common misconception? Oh my goodness, that's such a great question. You know, it's probably a blind spot for me. I don't know what the misconception would be. People say I'm extremely heart-centered. So I guess the misconception would be that that I don't get angry or upset or that I don't still have a lot of personal development work that I'm actively engaged in. Just because you're sharing a vision about what the best self looks like. So I, I like to share what my best self is working on. Doesn't mean that every day isn't isn't its own challenge. Every minute, in fact. You know, I, I think about your persona, how you present yourself. And I've seen you speak, and I don't think anybody would ever think that when you ever had a challenge, that you ever didn't know how to speak, or you were ever afraid of standing in front of an audience. <laughs> and I think about that, and the backstory would suggest otherwise. Yes, exactly. Now, looking back over the past three years or so, what would or should you have said no to and why? Probably should have said no to myself more. <laughs> okay. I, I have a team now around me that they say no to me pretty, and I've, I've invited them and asked them, and I, I reward them for doing that, for just saying no, because I'm one to want to squeeze so much out of a quarter, out of a day even. And I'm always kind of sucking the marrow out of everything or trying to anyway. And that can really wear thin on other people and on the organizational structures itself. So saying no to myself and having people around me that are willing to stand up and say, no, yeah, we think it's great. This is a great idea. Instead of it being in, the, in Q3, it's going to be in Q2 of the following year, if at all. But that's where we would like to put it. And then I really take a deep breath and go, Okay. Yes. <laughs> or I push back. But, but more often than not, the truth of the matter is I say yes because they're right. As you operate day to day as a CEO, is there a personal self-habit or self-talk that keep you and your company focused? Well, it is a vigilance of sorts. And, and it's kind of an interesting topic, vigilance, because I think part of why we're run down is that we run, I run in that vigilant state. I'm constantly sort of guarding. I was a lifeguard back in my early 20s and made a lot of rescues back then and, and we didn't lose anybody at our field and, and I have a, a mantra that I repeat to myself that nobody goes down in my water mm -hmm. not, not on my watch and you know we don't leave people behind and that vigilance uh, it can really wear you out so I'm looking more to be guided these days than to be on guard and I, I think there's a balance point that I'm exploring this middle ground between being on guard and being in surrender, so to speak. That sort of blind faith or faith, I want to say blind faith, but that that's where I'm, I'm playing in that territory in the middle. You know, for you, is there a quote that you use frequently or find meaningful? A quote that I find meaningful? Well, the one I shared earlier, I, I love my life, is the quote that I find the most meaningful because it's not just a statement of, look, my life is perfect or I love everything about my life, or I'm not needing improvement. It's a statement of what I want and what I intend. And more than anything, regardless of, and we can't see the whole picture. And we're so pressed, our face is pressed up against the plate, so close. We do not see the whole picture. So there's a lot to love that we don't. And so I state that as an intention, as a direction for myself to see the bigger picture. I tell you, this has been a treat. We're outside in Tampa, Florida. And I appreciate you sharing your insight and perspective for the listeners. And Adam, thanks so much for being on the show.
Thank you, Bob. Thanks you for betcha. having me.